We are still in the book of Exodus. We consider the third week of Advent and God appearing to his people, appearing to Moses at Mount Sinai. And one of the purpose of what we've been doing is showing these connections, connecting the dots from Genesis to the coming of Christ, that these are not haphazard events, but that the Lord has given us these these occurrences to show us his work and fulfillment in Jesus. So as we look to the reading of God's word, if you would join me in prayer. Living God, we would ask that this day you would help us by your Holy Spirit to truly understand your word, that in understanding we would believe, in believing we would follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. And this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Starting then in Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Always a challenge to reading a text or an email, because the words on a screen do not give us facial expressions or tone of voice. More than one person has had arguments over what someone meant in their text. We can overlay our current emotional mood on what we're reading as well. Having a bad day or being in a bad mood radically affects how we read a message. I can't believe he said hello like that. And we we know that. Like, what did he mean by that? Hello? No, you didn't. And on it goes because we know for certain what this person's motive was because of our heart, our own condition. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge for us not just in texts and emails. I'd say it's the same when we read the Bible. Think about it. How many, after reading parts of Scripture, have thought at some point, God seems grumpier in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Seems like there's two different gods. Why is he always unhappy? That's something I think is fairly common. And rather than seeing the Bible as a continuous work, the old and the new get separated in our thinking and usually given different voices. If we read with an angry voice, the word sounds one way. You take chapter 32, verse 9, where the Lord said, I've seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Say that in an angry tone, and it sounds one way. But if you read it in a tone where it's kind yet disappointed, it sounds another. Why do we usually pick the angry voice? Why is it usually that one that we overlay on God in the Old Testament? And on top of that, 
when we think of the Old Testament laws that we see here in Exodus that Moses is about to receive, we usually read those in a negative way too. Laws and rules may be necessary, but we are generally not seeing them in a good light. Few of us appreciate, don't do this, do this. We just don't like it. We don't like being told what to do. And so on Mount Sinai, it can seem like a stern and correcting God gives lots of rules and regulations, and he's just waiting for someone to get out of line so he can correct them. But is it all about laws and lawbreakers, or is there something else? Well, because the Lord has saved his people, he now invites us to know him more fully. And that's what we see taking place in Exodus. We, we looked a couple of weeks ago in Genesis, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But we see here he's also the God of Moses and the God of Israel. From a man to a family to a nation. The Lord desires to appear to them, to save them, and to make himself known. Israel has seen the terrifying plagues that did not touch them. They have seen the wall of water that they passed through safely come crashing down on Pharaoh's cavalry. And now they were facing this terrifying presence of the Lord God Almighty and what he has called them to do. The same God who called them by name, who cared for them, is now a terrifying presence before them. So a quick overview to catch us up to chapter 19. After the last plague in the Passover, they take off in the Exodus out of Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's chariots are, are sunk to the bottom. And a few days into the wilderness, the people complain because of lack of water. God provides. More walking, more complaining. God gives them manna to eat. More walking, more complaining, water again. God provides. A victorious military skirmish and a visit from Moses' father-in-law, and now Israel is camped out at Mount Sinai at the base. If you remember, this is the very place back in Exodus 3 where God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush and said, you're going to come back here, and they are. And now they're there before the mountain. And the Lord says, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. All of the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this offer is given out, and Moses tells the people this. The people respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so the Lord says to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them, tell them to wash, tell them not to come up to the mountain, that anyone who even touches the mountain will be put to death, man or animal. And when the trumpet sounds, then you could come up to the mountain, at least to the the bottom layer. Only Moses is allowed to go up to the top. Now, this does prevent a terrifying and awesome picture. Thunder, lightning, the smoke, everything, all the tempest. But they are shown that they cannot come to God like they are. One scholar puts it this way, he said, it's striking that these people whom God loves and has compassion on are guided to this holy place to meet their God, and upon arrival, he keeps them at arm's length. That catches us off guard. Only Moses is allowed to draw near to God. He is the unique 
mediator between God and his people. Moses is the mediator of God's word. Now, just a short aside here, because it's something that actually happens in our current climate. There is no Moses model of ministry to emulate. Some people talk about that, that, you know, we follow the Moses model, meaning I go up to God and get the word and you have to listen to me. No, Moses was the only one. The experience of Mount Sinai, everything that the people saw was to authenticate Moses. He didn't go into a cave by himself to receive some secret message from God. The people saw it. They saw what took place. And God affirmed that Moses was in a special place as the mediator and the lawgiver. Audible words are not the norm. God appeared to all of Israel, and there was no doubt in their mind about the words that Moses brought to them. It wasn't a private revelation, and it was never repeated in this dramatic way again. So the church does not need any leaders acting like Moses to get some special word, vision, direction, or mission from God to bring back to the people. No Moses model. We all go to the Word. We have nobody in between us and the Lord except the Lord Jesus. That is a good thing. So God is communicating something to His people in the way that He appears to them. He's holy. Direct access is going to require something be done about their sins. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws all set Israel apart from all the rest of the nation. But the giving of the law comes after the redemption out of Egypt, not before. One scholar, Thomas Fratham, he put some light on this. He said, the law is more clearly seen as a gift of God's graciousness when it's tied to the story. Law becomes another part of the larger story of God's goodness and mercy. The law is wrapped in the story of salvation from Egypt. We see that at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. At the front, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The salvation that he has brought is enmeshed with the laws that he gives because the narrative gives us a fuller picture of the God who stands behind the law while the law gives us an understanding of this God who saves his people. The two are enmeshed together because they show us his character. And the challenge is for us to keep the law from being impersonal. That's usually what we do. God's presence had been with his people visibly in the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He has been present to them. He sees them. He cares for them. And these laws are not just some abstractions of a law code. They're a part of what he has already shown them of who he is. And when we think about that, then my obedience, your obedience to the Lord who gave the law is to him and not to the law itself. We don't obey the law because of the laws. We obey God who gives the law. Our motivation is not just obedience for obedience sake, but it's to delight in the Lord. The law is given for flourishing with God and with one another. we, We have laws like that too that are for our good. You probably well know that you're required to have your headlights on at night. I don't know very many people who go, oh, the state of Montana has gone way too far this time. How dare they make me turn on my headlights at night? 
They're stealing my freedom. Nobody does that. It's not oppressive. It doesn't stifle your liberty to turn on your headlights at night. It's a way of loving yourself and loving your neighbor. The laws of God are not meant to stifle their freedom. They're meant to show them the character and the heart of God as they love and worship Him in one another. And this terrifying presence on the mountain is not one of anger, but holiness, transcendence. Unlike the idols of the nation, God is not here to serve their needs. The Creator has appeared to His creation that they would know and worship Him. The laws show God's character and His goodness. And all of this is all the more as God gives Israel a second chance. That they are very glad for His character and not just the law. Moses is up on the mountain 40 days receiving these amazing laws from a gracious God. But the inner lawbreaker comes out before the ink is dry. The people grow restless. What better way to kill restless time than throwing a party? Wow, worshiping a golden calf seems like a good idea. Aaron, can you make one for us? That's what they do. While, while Moses is on the mountain, there's, there's the fire of the mountain, lightning, thunder, all these things, the presence of God seen this way. And their best idea is, yeah, golden calf. And everything now seems to be on the brink of disaster. The elaborate stage that God has set all the way back in Genesis seems to be in doubt. Everything hangs in the balance. What is going to happen next? Well, the love and compassion of the Lord shines forth. We see a second chance. Yes, there's judgment that takes place. It's followed by the people's repentance. But God doesn't give up on them. Says the next day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses goes and says to the Lord, Oh Lord, please forgive their sins, but if not, blot me out from the book you have written. God does not accept Moses' offer of atonement. He does not stand in the place of Israel and is blotted out. Moses, the mediator, stands in the gap. And the Lord agrees to keep going with Israel because of who he is. And then Moses says this strange thing in verse, chapter 33, verse 18. Show me your glory. Why would he do that? Well, in context of what's taking place, he's asking God for a visible sign that he's really going to go with them, that he's not going to leave them. Show me your glory. Let me see that this, in fact, is true. And God says something back to him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. He reestablishes his covenant with Israel. All this echoes Genesis 15 and the language that the Lord uses in this covenant ritual with Abraham. But notice he changes Moses' request from glory to goodness. Goodness speaks of his personal character. It speaks of what kind of God is going to go with them. And then he says, you cannot see my face and live. I'll, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. When I pass by, I'll put my hand there and, and go beyond you so that you can just see my back. 
this is, we said the word, is a theophany, an appearance of God in a physical form. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. He takes on this form to communicate something to Moses. Well, what is he communicating? Chapter 34, as the Lord passes by Moses, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed down his head and worshiped. God gave him a second chance because he's slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. And what we see is through the entire history from the fall of mankind to the resurrection of Jesus is second, third. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances. God seems grumpy with this one little isolated incident that comes with hundreds of years of forbearance and patience of God's people violating his laws and his kindness against other Israelites. They're doing terrible things, not just about God, but to, to one another. And God, at various times, it it is his response and his judgment. It it, it shows forth. But all out of his steadfast love and his patience, his kindness and gentleness. That's entirely there. You meshed with it. And even there, we notice that as God keeps appearing to Moses, this relationship grows deeper. From what we saw last week till now, this understanding and this walk. But even there... There's a mystery to God's presence that Moses will not be able to penetrate. So back to that earlier question. Why would he invite Israel to come to his divine appearance at Mount Sinai and then keep them at a distance? Why would he not even show Moses a glimpse? God's appearing here in this way points us forward. We are lawbreakers at heart. How is a holy God going to have a special relationship with his people? This is looking ahead. These aren't just isolated events. This is one cloth, the tapestry of God's redemption. And the author of Hebrews picks up the thread and gives us an answer in Hebrews 12. He says, for you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's not you. In verse 22 of Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's the point. The terrifying presence of God on Mount Sinai, darkness and warning, threats of death to anyone who would come close to the holiness of God, now gives way to another terrifying presence. 
this time on the hill of Golgotha. There, we're told, darkness filled the whole land as Emmanuel, God with us, hung on a cursed cross. The gracious lawgiver takes upon himself the penalty of the lawbreakers. Moses offered to atone for Israel, but his life could not stand in place of another because he's a sinner too. Moses saw and reflects God's glory imperfectly. We're told in Hebrews 3 that he is a faithful servant, but Jesus is the faithful son. And in Hebrews 1, the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by the word of his power, after providing purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When you see Jesus, you aren't seeing the back of God. A glimpse as he passes by. You are seeing the exact representation of his being. The radiance of God's glory. And that is super important for us. Filmmaker and actor Woody Allen, he once quipped, the heart wants what it wants. And he said this as a justification because he was having an affair with his girlfriend's adopted daughter, 35 years his junior. The heart wants what it wants. And that's the problem. Our hearts want what they want. From the fall of Adam and Eve, the problem has always been one of the heart. I mean, the minute we're told, don't touch that, no, you can't have it. What's the first thing that goes into our heart? I want to touch it. I want to have it. Doesn't matter how old you are. We see it with little kids quite easily, but we see it in big people too. Don't do that. Ooh, I don't want to do it. Wish you would have said that. I mean, even on a small scale, we do that. We think, oh, I really look forward to reading this book. A teacher assigns it. Oh, I got to read this book. Why do you do that? Because it was assigned. That's the heart. I think in part we hear in God in Exodus an angry tone because he does set down the rules. And we forget that it is his law that tells us who he is. And there's a part of us the minute that we're told no, we're told rules, something wells up inside us that pushes against that. And we, like reading a text, overlay that upon God. And our response is, he always must be angry. No, he, he's a loving, gracious, and kind God who gives us laws that reflect his nature and his character for our great good. And we see it as an impingement upon our freedom. And what's needed is a new heart. That's the whole problem. Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's the new covenant. That's the promise of Jesus. That's the people of God walking, complaining, walking, complaining, walking, complaining. And it's like, why can't they get this? Because we don't get it either. 
We walk and we complain. We walk and we complain. We need the Lord to intervene. We need the mediator who not only brings to us the word of God, but the mediator who can stand in our stead and then put that word in our hearts, transformed and new. So that then our tone, the voice that people hear us with, ought to flow from that. Not a judgmental and condescending tone. Why can't you get this right? Even the very same words read in different tones speak a different message. A tone filled with a heart of joy and gratitude from a God who says, I have called you out of darkness into light so that you will be my people and I will be your God. That I will dwell with you. That is the God who has offered himself to us, has taken upon himself that which we could never do to set us free from the tyranny of our own sin and flesh, to walk in the liberty and the joy of the gospel of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, indeed, we are grateful for the many, many, many chances you give to us. You are indeed slow to anger, abounding in love. Your steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Father, we indeed are a blessed people. And Lord, even as we see your goodness, it highlights, Father, our own inability, our own sinfulness. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to purge us, that you would continue to bring forth by your Spirit a harvest of righteousness in our life that others would be able to see our lives and our conduct and they would give glory to you knowing that it only can come from you. We bless you, Father, for the saving tone of the gospel. We bless you for the saving truth of the gospel. Bring those together in our life, we pray, through Christ.